Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Hi, good morning. Can we please turn to Acts 24? And we're going to be reading the whole chapter. Acts 24. And this is Paul before Felix at Caesarea. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, um, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded, to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defence. You can verify that it is not more than twelve days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believe in everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man, now after several years, I came to bring arms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation should they have anything against me. Or else, lest these, man them, these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the res resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favour, Felix left Paul in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Shall we pray? 
Heavenly Father, we praise you this afternoon. Not just in the songs that we sing, not just in the raising of our hands, but hopefully in the living of our lives. Because you are worthy to be praised in all of these different ways. Father, as we think about the persecuted church, having open doors, come in and share with us this morning. Father, we thank you for the relevance of your word. It's more relevant than the newspaper headlines that are hot off the press. It tells us about the past, it tells us about the present, but it also tells us about the future. And we realize that persecution is, is consistent right throughout your word. It's nothing new, although, Lord, sometimes we seem a million miles away from that reality. Living in the West, Lord, we are blessed in a sense. Yet at the same time, there's a danger of our hearts becoming cold and insincere and robotic. Yet these believers, Lord, who are being persecuted, they don't have that luxury. They have to be serious about what they believe. And Father, we realize that throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, Christians have died have had their blood shed in order that we might have the benefit and the privilege of having your word in our hands to study today. So help us to take it, Lord, for what it is and be grateful and appreciative, Lord, and humbly say, Lord, what is your will for us? Our brothers and sisters in those places, Lord, they, they don't have a choice. But it seems like we have a choice but, Lord, do we really have a choice? The only choice we have is do we do our own will or do we do your will? So help us to that end, we pray. For Jesus' sake and for the glory of his kingdom and for the sake of the gospel, we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning, everyone. My name's Robert. I'm one of the pastors here. And our... <laughs> Amen. Our topic today or really the question that we're going to ask is who is actually on trial who is actually on trial can I share with you one of the most provocative thoughts I think that I've ever had now you'd be like oh Robert you always exaggerate this is not an exaggeration I mean it when I say that this is one of the most provocative thoughts that I think I've ever had, and it's this. You have nothing to do with the fact that you are here. You have nothing to do with the fact that you are here. And I'm not talking about the, f the fact that you're here sitting on a chair, or you're here in this building today on a Sunday. I'm not talking about the fact that you chose to wear the clothes that you wear or the fact that you work the job that you, you work. Evidently, you made those choices, right? Or did you? Well, those things are debatable. I can tell you one thing that is not debatable, and it's that you have nothing to do with the fact that you are here, that is, on this planet. You didn't determine when you were going to be born, and you didn't determine where you were going to be born. Can I get an amen? amen? We had nothing to do with the fact that we are here. And we have nothing to do with the fact that we are going to leave. We didn't permit our coming, and we cannot prevent our leaving. The only thing that we can do is make decisions in between. The only thing we can do that we have any control over is that we have to make decisions in between those two points we have no control over. That struck me with great force this week. Last week, we saw that God's purposes continue to be what? 
Maybe I was preaching to myself. <laughs> Amen. Thank you, Harriet. Last week we saw that God's purposes continue. See, because she was at community group. We, last week we saw that God's purposes continue to be unstoppable. God's purposes are unthwartable. And we learned that the reason for this is because God is sovereign and he is in complete and total control. Unlike Colgate, right? Yeah, even though God is in control, man is still responsible for his actions. You remember that from last Wednesday or Thursday. Now, that's scary. There's stuff that we have no control over, but there's stuff that we do have control over. And that which we do have control over, God is going to hold us responsible for. God is going to hold you accountable with regards to how you respond while you are here. To know that God is carefully, strategically, he's, he's orchestrating and God is controlling circumstances and situations, yet he will hold me and you accountable in regards to how we respond to those circumstances that he creates. Now, we had a look at some real life examples last week in Acts 23 of some who responded positively, but then also some who responded negatively. We're going to see that continue this week. And this is all in front of the big backdrop of Paul on trial. Or this is against the big backdrop of the gospel on trial. Or should I say God on trial? Or is it really us on trial? Here we are in a place called Caesarea. And <clears throat> it's on the coast. If you remember... Last week, we saw Paul in Jerusalem. He was held under guard there by the Romans just a few days ago. When a 40-man strong group of Jewish assassins, they plotted to kill him. Remember? And in an amazing chain of events, we saw Paul whisked out by night under heavy Roman armed escort. 470 Roman soldiers who bring Paul how? Safely here to Caesarea. And Paul's going to remain here for at least two years before he would begin his ongoing journey to Rome. Okay, so we're in Acts 24. Look at verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. So after a week, Paul's Jewish accusers, they're invited to also come now to Caesarea in order to present their case in court before the Roman governor, Felix. And they bring this sharp attorney, like Johnny Cochran. Remember the OJ case? He was defending OJ, and he was sharp. But this guy, Tertullus, he's not defending. He's persecuting, right? Or should I say prosecuting? I've got persecution on my mind. He was prosecuting as opposed to defending. And he's sharp. Probably very expensive and one of the best in Israel. The Jews aren't taking any chances, see? Why? Because Paul's going down whatever the cost. And it says, they laid before the governor their case against Paul. Verse 2. And when he had summoned, that is Paul, Tertullus began to accuse him to the governor, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. See, it's fake and it's flattery and it's ugly at best. Verse 3. In every way and 
everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. Now, I suspect he didn't have an English accent, but you understand the point, right? Verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Verse 5. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. And is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. Now verse 7 is questionable. Verse 8. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. And verse 9 says, the Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. Now, I'm going to come back to verse 7, which seems to be missing, at least in some Bibles. So, Tertullus opens up for the prosecution. And his opening statements are really based on one premise. It's in verse 2. And it's the thing that everyone seems to be enjoying. Can you see what it is? Peace. Much peace, long peace. And it's this peace that Paul is accused of disturbing. Well, on what grounds? Allegedly, he stirs up riots. Verse 5, among all the Jews throughout the world. Well, it's a bit of an exaggeration, although we know that Paul has been successful on his mission. They say he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. See, it sounds very seditious, doesn't it? He tried to profane the temple, they say, breaking Jewish law, right? Back to verse 7. In another translation, in verse 7, Tertullus is guilty of defamation of character because he lies about the tribune, Claudius Lysias, from last week, saying that he came, that's Claudius Lysias, he came and took Paul violently when, if the truth be told, the Jews were the violent ones. See, Paul is, he's then also described as a what? As a plague. That is something communicable, something contagious, something infectious, that has the ability to spread and contaminate others. Paul is being accused of committing high treason. Tertullus is alleging that Paul will single-handedly destroy not only the Jews, but potentially the whole Roman Empire. That's the accusation. We got great peace, but this Paul... If you don't do something about this man, the peace, the Pax Romana, that we all quote-unquote enjoy, which ain't really true, because there wasn't real peace. I mean, we're going to talk about real peace in a moment. <clears throat> but this is the allegation against Paul. Now, I heard a funny story this week. Um, you guys heard of John MacArthur, right? John MacArthur was on Larry King Live. Apparently, he's, he, he's, he's appeared on this show quite a number of times. And he's on Larry King Live, and he's talking about Jesus being the only way to God and Christianity being exclusive. Now, obviously, it was a phone-in, different people phoning in and so on. After the, the show... John MacArthur then receives a phone call from a man called Guy Ritchie. Now, when Guy Ritchie phones up John MacArthur, he's like, oh, hello, it's Guy Ritchie. And John MacArthur's like, Guy who? And Guy Ritchie's like, oh, I'm Madonna's husband. John MacArthur's like, Madonna who? <laughs> now, this is when they were married, right? Because you know that Guy Ritchie and Madonna are divorced since then, right? So Guy Ritchie says, look, I need to speak to you. Can you come over to my house? So John MacArthur then goes over to Guy Ritchie and Madonna's house in Beverly Hills. And Guy Ritchie kind of sits him down, possibly gives him a drink and says, 
Don't you realize what you did? Don't you realize what you did when you told Larry King and his American audience? Don't you realize what you did when you told them that Jesus Christ is the only way to obtain salvation? Do you realize what you did? And John MacArthur says, says well, I don't know. Please tell me. And, and Guy Ritchie says, and this is a statement, he says, you threw the whole universe out of equilibrium when you made that statement. John MacArthur, when you made that restrictive, bigoted statement about Jesus being the only way, you, you pitched the whole universe out of, check, the universe out of equilibrium. John MacArthur then went on to share the gospel with Guy Ritchie for about an hour and a half. See, we've got to pray for these people in these high positions because very often we don't think, Lord, how are they ever going to hear the gospel? But God is able. See, and the reason I mention that story is because it reminds me a little bit about what we see going on here in Acts 24. What with these accusations? As if John MacArthur was in danger of upsetting the balance of the cosmos. As if Paul were putting the first century universe at risk. If anything, they were correcting the universe. Now what we have before us, and you have to get the picture, is the might of Jerusalem. And we have the might of Rome. Jerusalem is built on history and tradition. Thousands of years of history and tradition. Rome, on the other hand, is built on conquest and organization. And, and it could seem as if Paul is contradicting one, if not both of them. But he isn't. Let's listen to his response in verse 10. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied. And Paul's going to reply in a similar way to Tertullus, or at least Tertullus's opening statement, but Paul's going to be a little bit more honest. And he says, knowing that for many years, Felix, you have been a judge over this nation, on that basis, I cheerfully make my own defense. Notice how he makes his defense. Grudgingly, bitterly, antagonistically, no, cheerfully. Verse 11, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. If only they could see that, if only, if only Jerusalem, if only Judaism could see that Paul was actually going to benefit Jerusalem. He wasn't coming against it. If only Rome could see that if the whole Roman Empire were like Paul, then they would genuinely have peace. But they don't see that. Paul says, I wasn't stirring up no trouble. Verse 13. And he says, you know what? Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you. This is my confession. That according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. Believing everything laid down by the law. I'm down with Moses and his law. Everything that's also written in the prophets. Name them. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Name them. I back all of them. I quote them. If you were to listen to me carefully enough, says Paul. Verse 15, it's having hope in God. Is that a crime? 
which these men themselves accept that is having hope in God, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and also who? The unjust. Is that anything new to Judaism? Is that, anything, is that, is that new to even your perspective as a Roman? I mean, you uphold the law. Why would you be surprised that God doing the same? Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. I don't have no beef with you, the Jews. I don't have no beef with you, Romans. My conscience is clear. And not just with you, but my conscience, more importantly, is clear with God. You know what they say. They say if your, if your vertical relationship with God is right and is true, then your horizontal relationship with others will also be true. The problem is when your relationship with God is twisted and it's off kilter, then look, the same thing happens with your relationship with others on a horizontal plane. Paul says, my conscience is clear as I stand before you here today, before God and man. Verse 17, now, after several years, says Paul, I came to bring Check it. You want to know what I'm, I was doing in Jerusalem? I came to bring arms to my nation. I came to bring financial services and benefit to my people, them. And to, see, that's men. But also to present offerings. Who to? To God. And while I was doing this, that's when they found me. Check it. Purified in the temple, you know. Without any crowd or any tumult. But some Jews from Asia, who really should be here, but they're not. And under Roman law, if you're going to bring an accusation against someone, those who actually are, are aware of that which was done need to actually be there, and they weren't. Verse 19, they ought to be here before you, says Paul, because he knows the law, and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me? But he doesn't. He doesn't he, Paul could have pressed this, and he doesn't. Or else, verse 20, let these men themselves that I hear accusing me, let them say what wrong, wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now, first of all, going back through that, Paul was not a troublemaker. It was the circumcision party that were the troublemakers. Remember back in Acts 17? Probably so long ago you don't even remember. Paul says, on the contrary, I went to Jerusalem as a pilgrim to worship. You can verify it. There are honest witnesses who can corroborate the facts. Can you remember James' advice a couple weeks ago? When James encouraged Paul to take a vow and go into the temple. Remember that? See, now, that's all in the providence of God, you know. It seemed like a crazy thing to do, we saw. An unusual thing for Paul to do. But now, because of that, there would be hundreds of witnesses who would be able to verify that what Paul says is true. He was worshipping God in the temple. Furthermore, what can they prove? Verse 12. They did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Verse 13. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. Paul says, I'm not the ringleader of a sect or a strange cult. I'm actually a follower of the way, which is true to the faith of our fathers. As written in the law of Moses, which is also in agreement with the prophets. See, I have a hope in God. That's the only crime that I've committed. Surely, these men can concur with that. Or do they? Honestly, if they did hope in God, Festus, that is these who accuse me, surely they wouldn't be here accusing God's messenger 
accusing God's message, accusing God. But nothing has changed in 25 years. These men, they always condemn the righteous. This, Hans, this Sanhedrin, this is what they did to Jesus. It's the same thing. This is the same group of men who put Jesus on trial, who screamed and demanded that he be crucified. It's the same group of hypocrites. They crucified God with a Bible in their hands. See, Jesus wasn't the one who was guilty. These men were. And Pilate was. Paul isn't the one who's guilty. These men are. The governor is. These men are the ones who ought to be standing trial because they are guilty. The persecuted Christians in North Korea, they shouldn't be standing trial. They're not guilty. The persecutors are guilty. The Christians in Northern Nigeria shouldn't be put on trial. Very often they don't even have a trial. Very often the persecutors take the law into their own hands. In some places they are the law. You know, for years and years I've heard about persecution in different places around the world. And I think it's probably since the Lord kind of put Jamaica on my heart that I've been more aware of what kind of goes on in other countries. Not just kind of reading it or seeing it on the news, but genuinely kind of sitting down and thinking, wow, Lord, you know what? Some of my brothers and sisters, some of my people, they're my proper suffering. It's only been quite the, the past few years I've begun to kind of think about that. And particularly last year, you know, that I, I go along with Mark and Neil. I go to a, a Bible training school in London Bridge called Cornhill. Well, Cornhill not only has students from this country, but they also have foreign students. And I got to meet two brothers, one called Tukumbo, um, and also a brother named Enoch. And they're both from Nigeria. Enoch comes from the same place that my brother mentioned a little while ago when we heard um, in the announcements. He comes from a place called Joss. And while we were at school, Christians in Joss, literally, we're in lessons. And all of a sudden, where's Enoch? Enoch's not here. Enoch had to fly back home because a number of people in his church were massacred. Muslim extremists had come in with machetes and cutlasses and they just hacked up these Christians. One of them was his friend. And he went and he was away for a week or two and then he came back, back to school. It's like, what do you say to the brother? Now, see, now it's not separated from us. It's not separated from me. It's not just something I'm reading in a book. And he came back and bred just so full of grace mercy towards the persecutors and just full of the, the peace of God. It's just amazing. And we came together and he encouraged us to pray for the persecutors who killed his friend. And, and Enoch's back now in Joss because he was only at Cornhill for one year. He was doing a full-time course. Well, we were, we're part-time, so we're two years. He was only there for a year. And he went back. And I tell you, every, every time I hear about Nigeria, and I'm like, Lord, I didn't realize it was, it was peak like that for them in Nigeria. And I know that we've got many Nigerians here in our congregation. Now, I was going to mention this in a few weeks' time, but I'll just mention it now because I would covet your prayers. Um, we have been going out to Jamaica every year, sometimes twice a year, doing missions and outreach because we believe the Lord wants to do a substantial work in Jamaica. And there hasn't been much talk about it, but it is still on the agenda. It's just in the, on the back burner. As you know, myself and my family, we've been through quite a lot over the past six months. Um, so it's just on the back burner. And just prayerfully kind of considering this year and what about Jamaica? 
Mark, you know, Mark's about to have a baby. Well, his wife is anyway. <laughs> You'd think that he was. <laughs> but <laughs> um, Yeah, he's under a lot of pressure at the moment. But Mark's not going to be able to go out with me at least the time that we would normally go. Mike um, possibly could, but just been praying about going to Jamaica. Now, in view of praying about Jamaica, you know, Jamaica is a developing country, just like Nigeria. Well, Nigeria might be a little bit further down the road in terms of development. It's obviously a much larger country, probably about 30 times the size of Jamaica, if not bigger. And just praying about Jamaica and praying um, about what the Lord might want to do whilst we're still here because we haven't left yet, right? We felt it was premature for us just to run off, um, even though that was the plan. Thank God for his mercy and his grace and that we didn't run off because if we'd run off, we probably would have run back already. We'd have come back before we even proper should have left so we're prayerfully thinking about it and about six months ago i got an email from tukumbo now tukumbo is the other nigerian brother and he lives just a little further of uh, further south of joss further south of abuja um i forget exactly the name of the place where he's from but he invited me to come and speak at a conference for a week on biblical exposition and I was like Lord Jesus on a level I ain't trying to go Nigeria <laughs> and I mean I'm struggling right now about going Jamaica like Nigeria I was like on a level I was like I'm not feeling this Lord you know what I mean but I had to give him the spiritual response and say well I'm going to pray about it my brother right you know and the thing is, when I said that, I thought, you know, I really need to. And so I thought, boy, Lord, okay. Lord, please take this cup away from me. That was my prayer. You know what I mean? Um, I said to Pastor E, and I think I mentioned to Pastor P. Um, I've got this invitation, you know, feathers, but boy, pray for me. And, you know, over the past week or two, I have just been praying more and more about it. And it's funny because maybe where we are in Acts has been hitting you. Maybe it hasn't been hitting you. Because we've been talking a lot about persecution. We've been talking a lot about death. Um, especially with the interjections when SL came and spoke. And Tim spoke the week before. Pastor E, the beginning of the year. I keep alluding to it because it's been hitting me. This whole thing about persecution. You know what I'm saying? And, and how the, the disciples, check it, they celebrated they, they saw it as a wonderful thing to be counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name. And I, to be honest, I, I, wasn't, I'm not, I wasn't in that place. I'm not trying to suffer, Lord, like that. But has the Lord talked about anything other than suffering since the beginning of the year? And I knew it because I knew the Lord was saying to me at the beginning of the year, you think that because up until now you've had drama. And, don't, and, and the thing is, you might be here and you might be like, Robert, you're so insensitive. You know that people in here are struggling. Listen. My wife lost her father. We buried him on the 20th of December. Within two weeks, my stepdad died. So don't tell me that I don't know nothing about tribulation and I don't know nothing about difficulty. And I don't say that to sound offensive. I'm just saying, just in case you're sitting there feeling like, it's easy for you to say that. And right from the beginning of the year, I felt like the Lord said, you know what, Robert? Just because it's a new year... Don't mean, don't mean that things are going to quote-unquote get better. And so I said, Lord, all right. I see how Paul is a great example of an individual who suffers for the gospel. And, as we just saw a minute ago, he cheerfully does so. And I thought, Lord, you've got to help me. So I realized not wanting to go was my will. But realizing the need, the desperate need for my brothers them in Nigeria, and I say my brothers them because I'm Jamaican, yeah, you know that Jamaica and the people that um, actually live in Jamaica historically came from West Africa. So I say my brothers on a spiritual level, but you know what? I'm African. And I'll be like, Lord, help me to be prepared like I'm laying my, laying my life down. I mean, I'm only going for a week. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's like we don't even live in reality, do we? 
But <clears throat> I would ask you to pray for myself. Um, the ex uh, I, I extended the invitation <laughs> to Bertram because he's Nigerian. <laughs> Try and drag him into this with me. Um, no, because obviously he knows where I go on, innit? It's his homeland. So, and, and I know that, you know, Bertram prays for his, 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 his people then. And I, and I said, well, Bertram, how would you feel about thinking, you know, coming with me? And, you know, he prayed about it. He spoke to his wife and they prayed about it. And he said, you know what? He says, yeah, let's do this. And so we, I formally responded and said, hey, yeah, we'll come. We have to find our own flights. And um, they're going to take care of us, give us proper African welcome when we get there. Jello fries and everything. <laughs> right? <clears throat> um, and what we're going to do is, I'm going to mention it because this is my desire. We've got some money in the Jamaica fund, right? What I'd like to do is I'd like to take some of that money to pay for our flights so we can go over to, to Nigeria because I suspect the work over there is very similar to the work in Jamaica. You know what I mean? They're both in a similar place. And so um, I'd like to take the liberty to do that. Um, because I've, one of the things that I'm going to do is I'm going to visit Abuja because the, the Bible training school that I'm at now has a Bible training school that is just opening. It's going to open in September. It's Cornhill in Nigeria, in Abuja. And I had, I had the, chop, that the privilege to meet the guy who's going to be heading it up out there. There's a Nigerian brother and an English brother called Lee Fernie, white brother, and he's packed up and left and gone with his family to, to, to Abuja. Heavy. You just go to the Cornhill website and you can look and you can see the details about it on there. Cornhill, Nigeria. It's called ABC. Um, Abuja Bible Center. <laughs> Amen. Amen. So please, um, I, I say that, um, yeah, please pray for us. I'm not even sure that it's going to happen, but we've started the process. So, Paul shouldn't be standing here on trial. These persecutors should be. But you see what Paul says? Paul says it's all right. Because I know something that you say you know, but you don't know. And it's this. I know that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Paul says. These Sadducees, they don't believe that. But their unbelief changes nothing. There will be a resurrection for the just and for the unjust. There will be a judgment. Paul says, I am on trial today, but then they will be on trial. Paul says, my conscience is clear. He said that the last time in the last chapter, remember? He says, my conscience is clear. Is yours? He could be saying to his persecutors. He could be saying to the governor. My conscience is, I'm on trial, but my conscience is clear. Now that must have been like a dagger in the heart of his accusers. Who knew deep inside that they were lying. They were offending their own consciences. Searing and hardening their hearts. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And Felix knows this. He is well aware of what is going on here. At least his heart is smitten. Look at verse 22. <clears throat> but Felix having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, um, you know what, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. He's a clever politician. Verse 23, then he gave orders to the centurion that he, that is Paul, should be kept in custody, but have some liberty. And that, None of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. Verse 24, after some days, Felix then came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. So his accusers are gone home now. 
Paul's still incarcerated, but it's kind of like open prison. His brethren can come and check him. Remember, Philip lives in the city with his four daughters that prophesied. They live in Caesarea. So he's probably got his brethren coming to visit him, bringing him jerk chicken and curry goat and rice and peas. You know what I mean? Or kenke. You know what I mean? And it's like, he's still incarcerated, but he's in an open jail. But after a little while, Felix comes to see Paul in prison, right, with his wife. Who's, what's her name? Drusilla. I don't know why I think of Cruella de Vil when I hear that name. <laughs> Drusilla. And she was, check it, she was Jewish. Now, it's, it's not so much what is said here as much as what is unsaid. Listen carefully. This Drusilla had a reputation for having great beauty and had been seduced from her previous husband by this same Felix. Felix the, Felix the cat, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm coming like Pastor Ephraim. I'm starting to laugh at my own jokes. <laughs> Felix! Check it, and, and, sh- and now that she's been seduced from her previous husband, <laughs> Kemi's laughing. <laughs> now that he's been, she's been seduced from her previous husband and is with Felix, yeah? Check it. She is the sister of Agrippa that we will meet in the next chapter. So I'll just hold that thought, yeah? While she was a woman of great beauty... She was a woman with an ugly past. She was, check it, she was the daughter of Herod Agrippa. Now Herod, you remember, Herod's a family of leaders. It's like, if I'm Herod, when I die, Jordan, my son, becomes the next Herod. I'm Herod Robert, he's Herod Jordan, right? There's enough of them. And she's the daughter of Herod Agrippa that had earlier martyred the Apostle James. Remember that? And also, she was the granddaughter of the Herod who had beheaded John the Baptist. The same Herod before whom Jesus stood at his trial. And there's more. This, she was also the great-granddaughter of the Herod who had killed the children in Judah as he tried to kill Jesus, the infant king, as a baby. Maybe Drusilla, as well as her husband Felix, are intrigued or fascinated about this message. You remember her great-great-granddad was the same. He was like, he'd bring John the Baptist out. His wife's like, why don't you kill him? Why don't you get rid of him? He'd "Ah, bring him out and want to hear him speak. He'd be like, John, show us a miracle. Like... He was fascinated with John the Baptist. I mean, until eventually his wife got the better of him, henpecking him, right? He ends up, well, that's what happened, really. <laughs> Sorry, that's what, and also his guests, remember he made a promise to his guests. And then he ended up having to keep that promise because of the fear of man. And he ended up chopping off the head of John the Baptist. But his conscience was affected by John in some strange way see and maybe this is what is happening with Felix and Drusilla see maybe they're wrestling they're not so much fascinated they're actually wrestling with their own consciences as Felix sends for Paul in verse 24 it says and he heard him speak about what faith in Christ Jesus you can see why Paul would then go on to reason about what? In verse 25. You can see why he would then go on to reason about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Righteousness, because they don't know nothing about righteousness. This brother Felix, the cat. And they don't know nothing about self-control. They're being controlled. I mean, it's clear what, what, what... what Felix needed to have done in face of these Jews, just throw the case out and let Paul go. But no. And then Paul talks to the brother again 
about that same issue of the coming judgment. And look at Felix's response. Felix was, was alarmed and said, okay, I've heard enough for the time being. He says, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you again. But he had an, altern- an alternative motive. The message, I suspect, to some degree was getting to him. But look how he continues to wrestle in his sinfulness. Verse 26. At the same time, that's, that is when he was bringing Paul out, he hoped that money would be given um, him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. Verse 27, and two years, when, two years, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And the question you have to ask is, oh my gosh, how on earth is God's word going to be fulfilled and the promise of Paul getting to Rome? Well, we're going to talk about that next week. So, getting back to Felix, held back by what? Held back by the love of money and also the fear of man, Felix prepares himself for judgment or not, as the case may be. Okay. Where's my drink going? Okay, so much for the history lesson. What is the writer of this book trying to do? Well, Luke is trying to do what he set out to do at the beginning of Acts chapter 1 and at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, because this is two volumes, right? It's written by the same person. What's he setting out to do? Well, he's setting out to prove the truth about Jesus. That's what Luke is trying to do. As Paul stands on trial, it's actually the gospel on trial. And the thing is, the gospel is not guilty. It's innocent. And that is Luke's message in this part of the book. The messenger isn't guilty. The message isn't guilty. The author of the message isn't guilty. The central figure of the message, who is Jesus, isn't guilty. The governor Felix is Tertullus. He's guilty. The high priest, who should have known better, is guilty. The Sadducee is guilty. They are upsetting the equilibrium of the universe. Not this message about Jesus. It's correcting the issues that are wrong with the universe. Now, not only is this message unstoppable, it's also inculcable. That means it's not blameworthy. It's not, it's not guilty. Luke is trying to communicate. It's not in the wrong. We are. Paul said that Paul said that his was that is his conscience was clear but is your conscience clear today I have to agree with Paul as I stand here in front of you in saying my conscience is clear and it's not because I'm not guilty I am guilty. My conscience is clear only because I've been forgiven. Is your conscience clear today? You'd be like, well, you know what? I'm not persecuting anyone. True. They're guilty if they're doing that. But how about the way you live your life. Can you say that genuinely 
you've never coveted. It's 10th commandment. That's desiring something that belongs to someone else. How about the ninth commandment? Have you ever told a lie? You know, you only, how many lies do you have to tell in order to be guilty? Just one. And you might have done it 10 years ago. It's like committing pedophilia 10 years ago. If they catch you, you're still going to prison. Is your conscience clear today? The eighth commandment is you must not steal. Have you ever stolen anything? Even if it's a rubber band from work. Do they have rubber bands anymore? Don't even use them, right? Everybody sends email. <laughs> Trying to save the trees, right? Seventh commandment is that you must not commit adultery. You'd be like, I'm not even married, okay? Jesus says if you've looked at a woman or a man to lust after them, you've committed adultery in your heart. They say you're single. Have you breached or broken God's law in losing your virginity? You'd be like, oh, but Robert, that happened years ago. Might happen last week. Whenever it happened, it happened, right? That's one of the reasons I'm guilty. Because I did that before I got married, before I got saved. I mean, but is that something that makes you laugh? Or is that something that affects your conscience? Or are you like Felix? It's like, well, you know what, I'm, re I'm really a bit more worried about money right about now. I'm really kind of more worried about what my friends think right about now. Do you not hear what Paul says about the coming judgment? Does that not terrify you? Last week I done an exposition at school looking at Zechariah chapter 3. And it's a vision and it's a scary vision. In Zechariah there are eight visions. And it's a bit like, like the night visions, the dark. And they're terrifying. And it's a little bit like Scrooge. See, Scrooge has got a problem, but he don't think he's got a problem. And so here comes the, the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. And they show him Wagwan. And at first he's laughing and he's joking. Yeah, yeah. That's in the past, but then he's like, rah, that was a long time ago. Look at me now, all gray hair and bent over. Rah. He starts to think and then he gets the Christmas present and it's like, let's have a look at the present. And he looks around and he comes, he needs, he needs to come out of himself to be able to really see inside himself. And he's, and, he's, and, he's, and he's looking at the present now. And this ghost, this dup is a bit, he's, he's, not as, he's not as laughy and jokey as the first one. And so Scrooge is like, boy, is that really how I'm living my life? And then, it's when the, when, the, when the scary duppy comes. The last one. The last one, he's so scary, he don't even talk. He's just on some dragging some chains thing. That's what he's on. And that's when Scrooge ain't laughing no more. You know why? Because this ghost shows him his future. And he shows him his gravestone. And Scrooge is like, raw. Okay. Now I'm seeing, now I'm hearing. See? You did not determine the fact that you are here. And you cannot determine when you leave, unless you want to commit suicide, which is madness. You want to check out and leave early. And you don't know where you're going? I mean... A Christian ought not to commit suicide. So I suspect it would be someone who's in a crazy place. Don't do that. We might be sitting there thinking, oh, no one's in there thinking about that. How do we know? Times are mad. You know what? I'm sure there's people in Japan right now who's thinking, you know what? It's better for me to be dead right about now. You see what that tsunami done in, in Japan? Someone sent me a text. I think it was Judith's sister, Juliet, and says, you know what? If people don't realize we're living in the last days, I don't know what it's going to take for them to realize now.
You can't control the fact that you are here. You're here. What are you going to do with it? Well, God is going to hold you responsible for the decisions that you make. God is going to hold me responsible for the decisions that I make in between my birth and my death. That causes me to, to fall to my knees and say, God, help me to start making some good decisions. If you're here and your conscience is clear, it's because... Jesus has forgiven you. The only road, the only route, the only way to genuine peace, not Pax Romana, some fake peace. We think we've got peace here in the West. Just wait. You think persecution's just hitting North Korea and just hitting places like Northern Nigeria? Just wait. Criticism is set up not to expect persecution. May God help us. May God help us to accept and not reject this message. Let's not put the message on trial. Let's get in the dock and say, you know what? Before you even throw the book at me, I'm guilty. We never even went through the rest of the commandments, right? I suppose we don't need to. Will you trust or will you put your faith in this message? Will you change your mind about sin Bearing in mind who is actually on trial. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for sobering us up this morning into this afternoon, reminding us about the reality of those, Lord, who are going through persecution. Thank you, Father, that as they, as they step over that threshold into the next life, thank you that you're there to wipe away every tear from their eyes. And Lord, I pray that we would be moved, Lord, to tears, not when we get home, but now. Moved to tears, Lord, for those who are suffering. And that we would, Lord, stop, stop being so concerned about our own personal privileges, our own creature comforts, Lord, that we would be more concerned, as our brother said, about others. We're so blessed, Lord. And I keep on saying it because it's true. And I remind myself, Father, that to whom much is given, you're going to have a lot to say to us. But Lord, even that sometimes doesn't penetrate our hearts because we're so drunk with the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches. We're overcome with the desire of our own flesh. We don't care about nobody else. And even when we do, for in a moment like this, it only lasts for five minutes. And then we're back on supplying our own needs and fulfilling our own desires. Lord God, we are all guilty. We're all guilty of that as Christians. And Lord, as human beings, we're all guilty of sin. Thank you that Jesus took, it, took, took life seriously when he came. Seriously enough to go and die and hang on a cross for us. In order that we might be forgiven. The righteous for the unrighteous. In order, in order that we might be accepted by you. I pray, Father, that believers would be encouraged to continue believing that today. But then, Lord, also those who haven't yet believed that. Not just mental assent. Yeah, I believe in God. No. Believe in. Trust in. Rely on and adhere to. That kind of belief, Lord. I pray that you'd stir that up and engender that in hearts this afternoon. Father, for Jesus' sake. And for the sake of the gospel. Right.